First of all, everyone is a liar. And there's only three ways that all human beings lie. Lie by omission, lie by exaggeration, or an outright untruth. Hey, this is Sean Newman, host of the SNP here in Canada, and you're listening to the one and only Vance Pro Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we interview John Lanius. John is a fascinating character. He walked into the studio, and he had this little tray that he wanted to plug in. And before long, I saw him getting all these powders out to use sometime during our conversation. I didn't really know what to expect. John had mentioned when we were chatting before the podcast that he had some sort of expertise in incense, but I had no idea where this was leading. What you are about to see is us having an interview turn into a deep and genuine conversation, largely not because of my skill, but because of the sense that John put into the room. I felt these things transform my emotion, my body language, and even the thoughts that I had. At one point, you will hear in this conversation when John tries to distinguish, are you so certain that uh, incense aren't drugs? And after having had this experience, I'm not so sure because of how profoundly they changed my thoughts and behaviors throughout this conversation. My only regret is that you are not going to be able to smell the things that I smelled and have this visceral physical experience. But even still, I tried my hardest to be able to describe them to you so that you could imagine what it would be like. And you can go along on this sensory experience with us and have the amazing adventure that I just had. You'll notice right now that I am sitting on a couch. That's because we just did a legacy interview earlier this morning with a couple that came all the way in from western Kansas. The couple had six children and lived on a farm, and they came in to record their family stories, their history, their values, and the wisdom that they've acquired along the way as they fought to be able to keep their farm through the 80s and as they raised these children in a farmhouse on uh, sending them to a small school. You know, when they stepped into the room, they felt like they didn't have stories to tell or anything worth recording. They were just doing it because a family member said, I really want you to do this. But they noticed as we had this conversation that they did have stories, stories that mattered to them, stories that their children loved hearing them say, and even some stories that their children had never heard before. I'm excited to send this interview to them because I know not only Will they have this interview to store and be able to pass down to kids and grandkids, maybe even great-grandchildren that might never meet them? But the experience of watching this video, this recording of their life at some holiday, will be something that will get, bring joy to their entire family. I enjoy doing these legacy interviews, but even more than that, it is a deeply valuable thing that we're creating together. So if you'd like me to sit down with your loved one to record their family stories and wisdom, go to LegacyInterviews.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's go on this sensory in intoxicating experience with my man, John Lanius. John Lanius, welcome to thank, the podcast. Thank you, Vance. Appreciate that. To start off, how would you describe the smell of a lemon? <laughs> well, that's... I love how you said that, actually. So to describe the smell of a lemon is that to actually experience the smell of a lemon, we have to be in the presence of it. If not, then we can only describe it. So if I said to you, Vance, imagine the smell of a pine tree. 
You can't. But what happened is that you have a mental image of a pine tree. Am I wrong? I feel like for a split second I have it, but then it's gone. It's, yeah. it's like it's like you imagine that you can grab that smell in your mind, but yeah. it's it's fleeting. Yeah, it's interesting that the the sense of smell has been used for thousands of years to skip what you might say is our waking and cognitive brain, and it goes right to the unconscious. And so if we look at, for example, historical figures, Nagarjuna, who was an Indian saint, um, you know, he used fragrance thousands of years ago as a way to cause enlightenment, which sound, at first maybe sounds a little non sequitur. But, you know, have you ever walked into a building and maybe the smell reminds you of third grade? and you transport back 20 years in a heartbeat, right? So when you begin to use fragrance as a way to start to untap or unlock parts of your brain, then you can truly use it as a path to peak performance. So on my LinkedIn, for example, there's an article called The Scent of Peak Performance. And in that article, I recount a little bit of a uh, time with Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, how we're talking about Steve Jobs's wedding and it was incense laden because a lot of people forget that Steve Jobs spent time in India. And, you know, the 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 that particular culture has used incense and fragrance again for thousands of years for a myriad of reasons, whether it's religious or circling back to peak performance. Why is it so difficult for us to be able to lay out the words that go with smells? I, I spend a huge amount of time with my daughter in the morning to like get her cooking, get her going. I pull out spices and I have her smell them and I try and get her to guess what they are. She's two, so she her her hit ratio is pretty low, but it's not zero, right? She can smell cinnamon and she can get it. And also, I've observed that... Um, she when she smells a new thing right it shocks her in yeah. fact anytime i've ever given her a new smell you see it hit her mm -hmm. as like an actual like physical thing mm -hmm. but when we go to describe those smells which is the thing i'm trying to give her a language around yeah it's nearly impossible like yeah i don't have words to describe how does cinnamon smell yeah well so you did a couple things in your body language as well as in the words that you use. So let's break that down a little bit. You said, you know, how do you, you know, figure out like scent language, for example, right? And then you 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 talked a little bit about how when your daughter experiences a new fragrance, she literally has this physical um, kind of uplifting, right? You could you, so whenever you discover something that you've been struggling with, like if you've been, you know, uh, butting up against a, a challenge or a problem, and then all of a sudden you have a breakthrough, there's that physical part of our body that 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 lightens up. So quite literally, you're enlightening. So when you're describing your daughter's experience with cinnamon and and that enlightening experience, that's what I'm pointing to, or at least I was a moment ago, when you talk about using scent as a way for peak performance. So to answer your specific question, to put language with fragrance is very difficult because you, you'll say like, well, it smells like, or it smells like. And so what again, what that points to is that you need to be in the presence of uh, the fragrance itself. To, to connect this to, to human connection, we've talked on the phone, right? We may have looked at each other's LinkedIn profiles or things like that, and we, we've got a certain sense of who we both are. But when we begin to metaphorically burn together 
or create a fragrance between the two of us, then the more authentic we are, the more that we get a good sense of, you know, what is Vance's fragrance. Um, I'm connecting this to The Tale of Genji. The, the Tale of Genji was one of the first novels written in the world during the Heian period, about 798 to 1149, depending on who you ask. And in that book, uh, there's a character by the name of Carol. And Carol was said to walk with a hundred pace incense, meaning that when he would walk into a village or a town, the fragrance, the wonderful, amazing fragrance of Carol would follow behind him at a hundred paces. And so if you can imagine, you know, let's say the 15th, 16th century, maybe even earlier than that, when, uh, when personal hygiene wasn't as popular as it is today, to have someone come into a town that had this transformative amazing fragrance they might do exactly what your daughter did which is to lighten up have a physical actual reaction to that and then you know really find a connection and uh and be transformed by it i never even thought of it but when i was living in kenya i lived with a homestay family yeah. and you take a bath there fairly regularly kenyan's very clean but you're talking about a bucket bath you're immediately getting sweaty as soon mm -hmm. as you're done when I was there, I realized I can tell who was in this room by the way that it smells yep. in a way that you can't in Western culture, right? Yep. Like if, if the only way that I could would be like through incense or perfume, right? You can smell yeah. your father's cologne, your wife's perfume, something like that. But the scent of the actual person wasn't there. Whereas when I was in Kenya, you could be like, oh, if that's the smell of children, right? That's yeah. the smell of a man, right? And I yeah. and I know which man it is because there's only one other full-grown adult there. It had never crossed my mind to actually put that together, even though that was an experience that was very vivid to me. Yeah, I really appreciate that you shared that 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 story because for thousands of years we have chosen our mates by fragrance, we have chosen our tribes by fragrance, and in the last hundred years or so billion dollar industries are being created to cover our natural scent our natural fragrance now some some people say well good that's great i mean have you have you been to you know like a have you been to like an amusement park on a Saturday when it's 110 out yeah there's some stuff that i do want to cover <laughs> in the sense of smell but you know one of the things like that let's just take attraction for a moment you know when you're looking at someone, you would say, okay, that person's attractive. The next thing you're going to want to do is smell them. Now, that sounds a little, uh, you know, rude maybe, but, you know, but it's like, I want to yeah, know. But we're animals. Yeah, right. like but, it makes but total ex sense. Exactly. We're, we're animals. So I, I think I think this is the perfect time to maybe share a little bit. So today I, I've brought a warmer, not a burner, but a warmer. And so as we're talking, Vance, we're going to, I'm going to actually warm a number of of uh, raw ingredients of incense. So let's take the word incense and let's take the word drug for a minute because I want to break this down. So the word incense comes from the Latin incensum, meaning to burn through. So anything that is burned through that produces a pleasing fragrance, and sometimes not, but for the most part, a, a pleasing fragrance can be considered incense. I've, uh, over the course of the of the 40 years, I can't believe I'm saying that, for 40 years of studying this, it's, uh, you know, people have asked me, they've said, you know, is incense a drug? It absolutely is, because the word drug 
comes from the Germanic word drug, meaning dried herbs. <laughs> right? So I'm going to just, we'll just do this. I'm going to step away from the mic for a second. So the, so the, the first one we're going to warm is called Borneo camphor, Drybalanops aromatica. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what it does yet, but I just want you to notice, like, like notice your nasal passageways right now. Okay. Just, just notice how well or not well that you're breathing. Okay. And just that small amount. I actually put maybe a little too much, but yeah, just a tiny, tiny little bit. You know, one of the lessons in in the incense culture is that, you know, all you need is a little. And when you think about the relationships that we have with people is that sometimes the best relationships are the ones where we just, just really just very little bit of energy. We're just, wow. I can already. So hop in over here and get get right over it and get a, get a little fragrance. So, so you say, wow. So what's, so what's happening with you physically? Uh, I, I mean, just like my daughter with the cinnamon, I am, I, I was like, I can't smell anything. I can't smell anything. And then I take a waff and I'm like immediately hit by, it smells like a dry smell is the way that I would describe it. Right. Like, uh, um, not like eucalyptus, but if I were going to put it in the genre, it would be somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Borneo camphor, Drybalanops aromatica, uh, has been scientifically proven to kill 99.9% of bacteria on contact. So if you'll notice, and I'm going to have you do it again here in a second, I want you to get a, a nice big whiff of that, just right, you know, and just, I'm going to, and then I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about. So what do you notice is happening to your sinus cavity? Very clear. It's very clear. Right? Very clear. So it's actually. I think that's why I described it as eucalyptus or dry. Like yeah. Like immediately passing through my nose. Yeah. And you'll and so you're actually breathing better now, correct? A hundred percent. Yeah. So very quickly, hundred percent natural. We've dilated your sinuses. If I were to give you a like an allergy medication, how long would it take for that to take uh, to take effect? 45 minutes. 45 minutes. How long did this take? Instantly. Instantly. Instantly, right? So one of the things I think that's interesting when you talk about teaching people about the word incense, there's so much baggage that that Americans have with it, right? They're like, well, I've smelled incense. I've gone into head shops. It's really just, oh, my gosh, I just it bothers my nose, right? I don't know why I just made that person have that voice, but gosh darn it, it's fun. Um There's so much synthetic fragrance in the world today that's actually causing more problems for us, not only from a physical standpoint, but from a mental standpoint. Do you notice anything about the clarity of your thinking now? I mean, I'm way tuned in. I'm like very much about what's going on right now. Yeah. So the Chinese call dry balanops aromatica, they call it brain of the dragon. So I can show you probably 10 to 15 poems from the Tang Dynasty where you have poets talking about how they're using one incense called aloes wood and they're using, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the Borneo camphor as a way to hyper-focus their brain to work overnight. It's called, again, Brain of the Dragon. The, I mean, I, 
if if you would have told me that we were going to talk about this and and you'd have to explain like no it's not a drug i was like what is, what is this is crazy talk no who thinks that but as we're doing this like I feel a sense of euphoria yeah. in the sense of it's a very seldom that I have this much focus. The only other time that I have this much focus is either working on a project where I've been like way honed in on it or watching my daughter. Right. right? Like where I'm like, I don't really there's nothing else in the world I want more than yeah. observing what's going on here. Yeah. All right. So now let's take it one step deeper. OK, so I'm also a certified hypnotherapist. And so if, for example, we were going to have a stick of burning incense, so just everyone listening in advance, just imagine that you've got a stick of incense burning and you're watching the smoke on a black background. Just to start to imagine the smoke, you know, moving, doing what it's doing, right? Very similar maybe to like how water, you know, might move, right? So there's uh, two expressions that I use in the experience that I give called the incense journey. One is called Mizu no Kokoro, which means mind like water. And the other is Ko no Kokoro, which means mind like incense. So the mind that you are now operating in, where you're talking about I'm hyper-focused, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really tuned in, etc. To have the mind of Ko no Kokoro is one where you are fragrant, you're authentically being your authentic self, and you are, there's nothing getting in your way. For example, if, you know, if I crashed your car five minutes before we started this interview, there's probably going to be stuff between us that's going to keep us from really connecting because you haven't gotten the fact that I crashed your car a little while ago out of your head, right? So when when we look at, at every communication that we have, like and, and I mean conversation, we're either A, trying to reduce our pain, or B, we're trying to... Um, expand our pleasure. So for example, if you needed to talk to somebody about the fact that I crashed your car, are you telling them the story to reduce your pain or are you telling them to, you know, expand your 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 happiness? I'm trying to reduce my pain. I'm exactly. trying to get that resolved. Yeah, exactly. And so looking at things in these two very simple ways starts to have you understand where your pain is. Now, how how does that relate to all of this? Well, Again, as the sense of smell is our repressed sense and how what Freud and others have said is that if you don't understand your subconscious mind, you don't understand how the subconscious mind is driving everything that you are doing. And from time to time, our waking mind, the mind that's, that's communicating right now, you and I are communicating with the waking mind, you know, is that, is that if... If the subconscious is not aligned with the conscious, this is where a lot of the problems in our life take place. So, again, to talk about this whole journey. I mean, to to that point, I think, you know, when I think about parts of my life that are the most troublesome, yeah. they're the ones when I'm like, I just can't figure out why this is happening, right? And, like, the reality <laughs> is there's a shadow part of you. There's a part of yes. you that is uh, not good that you don't want to look at. And it's not that you are actively choosing. I don't want to look at what I am doing to contribute to this problem. Mm -hmm. It is that you're, it's scary to go look at what it is that you're doing to cause this problem. And it's much, much easier to imagine the problem is not the shadow in me. Mm -hmm. It is that person, mm -hmm. that, that obstacle, whatever it is, because mm -hmm. it's much, much easier to look at the outward than the inward right well what's really great about the about what's what's happening today in the 21st century that i would assert 
for the most part, started during the 70s and 80s and somewhat of the 90s when you talk about the human potential movement that took place in America, is that when I now say the word mindfulness, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. If I would have said meditation and mindfulness, let's say 50 years ago, people would have looked at me like I had three eyes, right? Well, it seems irreligious in some way, right? It's, say more about that. Well, I, like... um you know, I grew up in a conservative Christian town. There were okay. 14 churches, right. you know, 60% went to a church that like didn't allow televisions in the house. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so mindfulness would be one of those new age ways to sneak non-Christian beliefs mm -hmm. into, into your thinking, or at least that would have been the culture that I came from. So right. when I hear you say mindfulness, now I know what you mean, but 18 year old Vance would have been like, Oh, this is this is what they're trying to the sneak in. I don't know. It's it sounds like a, a throwaway line for me to be like sneak in the devil, but <laughs> but it is like that. That is the perception, and I would imagine. I think my hometown was like what the 1950s was a lot like. Yeah, I'm guessing that is probably why people would look at you with three eyes. Yeah, well, I'm. It's it's interesting that you that you use the word devil. So one of the talks that I give is called "The Devil Out by Fire, Smoke, and Incense." And it's actually looking at a lot of the, the literature uh, from not only Christianity, but, but many religions over the last 6,000 years that talk about how incense and incense smoke and fragrance, etc., expels the, the evil, expels the devil, expels demons, things like that. Now, for some people listening to this, it's like it's not, you might say, "Oh, is, is John about to go woo woo?" You know, and and it's it's not that at all. I mean, I think, you know, it's I meet a lot of people that might fall into, you know, kind of the woo woo category. If you look at me or you're watching the video of this, you know, I'm in a tie. Oh yeah, and, I almost told you you were a little square coming <laughs> in here. Like you got your tie on and you're doing great, but I'm just saying like. I would these two you and what you're talking about would not fit together in my mind. Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's this expression that came up uh, a number of years ago with my friends is that they they call me a shaman in a suit, and <laughs> and, and so when you like when you look at the word shaman, you know uh, the 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 word uh, you know comes it, it's Russian or uh, it's you know that part of the world, but it's a it basically means. Uh, you know, someone who's responsible for the connection between the physical realm and, quote, everything else, right? So your thoughts could be everything else because your thoughts manifest in the physical world, but they don't start in the physical world. You know, they're, they're, they're starting and ending in many ways, you know, obviously in the space between our ears. Now, that's the, that's the, the human brain, right? Now, we also know from, from the research that we have a heart brain. And we also know from the research that we have a gut brain. And so there's actually three brains within our body that are all either working in opposition to each other or in agreement with each other. You know, the gut one I can see. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm currently teaching my daughter uh, how to be potty trained. And we're at the very first stages. <laughs> and you have to. And it's really interesting because you forget that you yourself have the oh, I have a feeling. Right. And I need to recognize one, that that feeling doesn't mean I should just squat down and go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. right? It means I like now I need to do something about this. Right. And then you have an elapsed amount of time between there. But a child doesn't know this, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to make them aware that they are having this sensation. So when you say gut brain, 
I am right there right now trying to teach that to a child. But a heart brain, I don't, I don't know what that is. So the Japanese word for heart or sincerity of heart is makoto. And so uh, I believe that this is Harvard and the Mayo Clinic over the past 10 to 15 years. There was this phenomenon that was showing up where when there was a heart transplant that would take place, when the heart transplant was done successfully and the, and the patient recovered, they would start to all of a sudden display habits or preferences that they didn't have before. Like a young person might pick up skateboarding for no particular reason. Come to find out that donor was a skateboarder. And so there's, there's, uh, I mean, I would just say go to the internet and look this up, but there's a, a ton of research that's beginning to emerge that what the Japanese and what, you know, uh, Asian cultures were saying for years and years and years is that there is the makoto, there is the, the heart brain as well as the physical brain and the gut brain. And so moving all those three together, um, you know, really creates some interesting dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I can see where the where the woo-woo, you are balancing things. Because as you describe this, it's very hard for me not to be like, no, that, that can't be right. But I have no reason not to, to uh, be open to it. And I certainly believe that there are thoughts that are not driven by your logical brain, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that there are, in fact, also raising a child, right? You, you see very clearly that human beings are driven by the emotions and those emotions are in a series of impulses like electricity, right? You watch a child being happy, happy, happy. They realize they want cheese now the the everything about them is about cheese and at first you're like oh that's what children do and then you're like no 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 that's in me right now i feel the same thing i right. want cheese now that i'm thinking about it but i figure <laughs> out a way to tamp it down and that's not your logical brain but is that the heart brain you're talking about it I, so so there's an aspect of that and so when you were talking about again your daughter the subconscious brain or the subconscious part of our mind stops developing around the age 13. So quite honestly, when we are using our subconscious brain, you're accessing a 10-year-old. Whoa. Right? So what becomes, because, so there's this concept called imprints, okay? So if you looked back over the course of your life, and I said, pick a defining moment from your childhood that from that moment following, you were changed. Can you pick one? Yeah. I mean, yeah. most of them are ones I wouldn't want to well, right. say. Right, right. Well, they might. But it, but is there a safe one that, that, that you'd be willing to share? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What would that be? Um, I was um, at a Boy Scout camp. Okay. And I was um, w working as a counselor in training. Mm -hmm. And so I was shooting 22s on the gun range. <laughs> and uh, I got really good, like mm. really, really good to the degree that I could shoot the... Um, clothespins off from 50 yards away with the 22. Like I was really good. So I was doing it all the time and I got caught. And the guy that was running the range, my experience with doing something wrong and getting caught was that you would get in trouble, you know, yeah. anger. Yeah. He played this up with the other kids and said he was going to call my mother. And he walked out to the truck and he got his big bag phone and he held it up. 
And I thought he called her, but I noticed right as he was getting started that the buttons were still lit up. So she wasn't talking. And he gives this big explanation. Then he hangs up the phone and the kids are all watching wide eyed. And then he says, ah, your mother wanted me to give you this. And he gave me a like a pretend kiss on the cheek. Right. <laughs> and I realized in this moment that he was doing this big display for them yeah. because he needed them to not try and do what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But he was being eternally kind to me i wasn't in trouble he made a joke of it he actually made me look like a god in the eyes of these other boy scouts yeah and it imprinted on me a level of compassion for other people mm -hmm. that i didn't have before that day and in fact then from that day forward would always look for chances when i'm really angry or i've found some way like what's the compassion moment i can do here yeah does that fit that fits so that's a positive imprint so that particular experience from your childhood has set up a particular way of being that you are now as an adult with as many people as you can be. Would, would that be correct? A hundred percent. So here's the other side of that. When you talked about our, your shadow self a little while ago, right? We have many, many imprints over the course of our lifetime that we have never done anything with in a, in a productive way. So if we're, relating all of this specifically to hypnotherapy or incense journey or things like that is that I can use different types of incense and fragrances to unlock parts of your subconscious mind because I've been working with this for 40 years. I, when I was nine years old, I started studying two things, world incense and martial arts. I hold numerous black belts and numerous styles. Um, and you would, again, you would never know it because, you know, like like if you go out on the internet, you know, there's all those jokes about like martial artists and, you know, guys that walk into the room and they're all ready to fight. It's, it's just not that at all. It's it's really, it's about understanding the, the unification between your mind, your body, and your spirit. And we will spend a lifetime if we have the opportunity to learn to integrate those. And oftentimes we don't know where to go. Like some, you know, like we're beginning to get a little bit away from the negative stigma of therapy. But if you find someone that you trust and, you know, we make jokes oftentimes like, oh, well, you're acting, you're, you're my friend, but you're acting like my therapist. Right. Well, we're all, all of us, every single one of us on the planet are looking to work out parts of ourselves that keep us from being our full, magnificent, amazing self. Now, I'm talking like this to you on this podcast because I feel a safe space to do that. Am I going to talk this way in every environment? No, I'm not. Because, you know, the world isn't a safe place. We know this. But the spaces that we create with others can become the safe spaces. So, it's not so much a focus on, you know, how do I change the world? No, you can't change the world, but you can change yourself and you can change the dynamic between your circle of friends. My circle of friends is not very large, even though I know a lot of people. But when it comes to like sitting down and having a conversation like we're having right now, it's fairly rare. In addition to that, it's fairly rare for most people on the planet. And we would be much better off if we were able to create safe spaces for each other to then begin to work some of the things out that we have that's going on with us that, you know, before you're able to work that out, you might have to have an ab reaction where you might have to cry. 
You might have to laugh. You might have to get angry before you get happy, right? And giving ourselves permission to be able to do that is really all about everything that we're going to talk about and have talked about. So... I, when I when I hear you say this, uh, so we we're not using this space for podcasts. We do these things called legacy interviews, okay. and we interview people for uh, to tell the story of their lives, their childhood, the career they had, their marriage, parenting, and the legacy they want to leave behind. And one of the things that has become very very clear to me, I think I thought this before, but now I really know it, is that most people go most of their lives never having had anyone listen to them. Mm -hmm. And they talk. It's not that there's, you know, maybe if they say, hey, pass me the salt, somebody acknowledges that they want you have that request and it's easier for them to fulfill that request than to ignore you completely. But about the things that they're thinking about, about mm -hmm. the perspectives that they have, about how something, you know, struck them, they never have that. And so mm -hmm. when you do this for an hour and a half, people finish and they are either... Like, oh, this was the most contemplative meditation I've ever had in my mm. life. Or they look like they've just jumped out of an airplane, right? Like they, they, they just went skydiving and they just had an exhilarating experience. And it's all because when, when was the last time somebody took an hour and a half to talk with an old man that wants to reflect back on his life? Almost never. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the at least two of the five levels of psychological trust. While I'm doing that, what I, what I, what I would like you to do, Vance, is, is smell. And I'm going to talk about the difference between smell and listening in, in the incense tradition. Just start to just like spend like 30 seconds with that fragrance. Just allow it to, to, you know, to work with you over the next 30 seconds or so. So when we're looking at the five levels of psychological trust, the first two are, do you get me? And are you for me? And so when we, when we talk about starting to develop psychological trust with another human being, the first two have to be met, which is that do you get me, right? Do you get me and are you for me? And once I know that is really true, then I can start to be my authentic self in a safe way. And That is dead on. That is dead on. And it's so fundamental to human interaction that it is shocking mm -hmm. that we don't we aren't more conscious of those two things. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, people that may wear certain clothes or do certain things to keep, you know, you away from them. Like if I'm just I'm taking a like if we imagine the punk scene from the seventies, right? With the big, you know, collars with the with the sharp points on it and, you know, and all that, it's like in many ways, people were dressing that way. Yes, to be unique, but yet they're all in the same group looking the same. Um, but it, it was also that, you know, don't approach me. Don't, I, you know, there's so much fear, you know, that with that, you know, there's a, there's an expression called, uh, you know, that which you resists persists. So this goes back to the mizu no kokoro and the ko no kokoro, is that mizu no kokoro, mind like water, is that, you know, water is content with the low places that people disdain, yet it nourishes all things. Ko no kokoro, if you have pure fragrance like what you're smelling right now, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, ko no kokoro is that if you're being your authentic self, 
what happens is that you, the person I'm, I'm talking with, begins to mirror me. And you get authentic. And so when you meet somebody who's like, eh, well, you know, Vance, eh, you know, I run three companies and, uh, you know, I've got a couple million dollars. Well, you're going to already be on, be on edge. You know, you're, 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 you're not going to trust the conversation that we can have because you're not clear if I get you or, or if I'm for you for that matter. All right, so let's talk about, so what's your experience? I'm, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but what is your experience of the chipped um, wood that you're smelling? Well, that's what I was going to say. It, it's clearly wood, yep. but it's not like sawdust in the way that you get, um, you know, on a construction site. Yeah, it's yeah. something much more akin to an old cedar closet mm. or or um, something. It, it smells... Um, like longevity, like it, it smells like something that has um, is alive because it smells, but mm. but is still uh, been around for a while. Do you have any sense about what it is? I I would have said like a balsa or a cedar or something like that. Okay, so yeah, so you're right. It is a wood, but what that is, and and you're gonna know this word when I say it, and so that's the reason why I'm kind of drawing this out, right? Sandalwood. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. In fact, I get shampoo because I like the smell of sandalwood, yeah. but I didn't. That's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that sandalwood that you're holding right there is called Old Mountain Sandalwood. So I'm going to put it on the warmer. So what do you notice about the quality of your mind by spending a few moments with that fragrance? Well, I noticed that... Uh, by by coming back and continuing to smell it, that's the thing that grabs your attention for just a moment. It's mm -hmm. not it's not very long, but it's like okay, whatever you're talking about. If I smell this, now that's the thing I'm thinking about, and I can flip back. And I would say, very calm, very settled. But mm -hmm. but whenever you take the the whiff in, it grabs your attention. Yeah, if I'm looking at your physiology from when you were working with the Borneo camphor a moment ago. Like there was this very much like you were sitting up. Well, now you're more, you're, you're, you're more relaxed. You're laid back. Sandalwood in numerous religious cultures has been used as a contemplative or meditative uh, incense to assist with calming and clearing and centering the mind. There's a Japanese word uh, that has a number of meanings, but two meanings that are pertinent to this conversation. Uh, shikaku is the word. Shikaku, it means dead angle or it means eye of the hurricane. Okay, So a dead angle in martial arts is where you want to be because it protects you from being hit. The, the more metaphorical or philosophical uh, expression, which is uh, shikaku, eye of the hurricane, is that most people, and you've seen, you see this every day, and, you know, like, no offense to big box stores, but if you go to a big box store and you watch people walking around, they live in chaos. You can just see it. It drips from their, from, from their being. So if most people live in this, in the chaos, in the outer edges of the hurricane, one of the things that we can assist our fellow, you know, humans with is moving out of the chaos to the center calm of the hurricane. Because once you're in the center calm, but there's a high, there's a lot more pressure, right, when, when you're in the center of the hurricane. But then you can begin to move the hurricane and create a new path for yourself. So 
one aspect of the study of incense, the study of fragrance, hypnosis, all of that is bringing people back to their center calm that we were all born with, that we all have a, we, we have a memory of it. Like we remember being children and being at calm or at peace. Now, there are exceptions to that depending on the kind of home that you were grown up in and things like that. But we've all been able to, to see that when we were children, there was a different level of calmness or clarity than where it is now when we're adulting. So, you know, when you, when you begin to look at a way, like, here's the thing. When it when it comes so hang on a second, are you getting? The, oh yeah. yeah. In fact, like it was uh, pronounced right when you when you first get it, you're like, wait, am I smelling? And then you're like, yeah, I am. Yeah. I really am. So, do you see any smoke? No. No. Not at all. So, well, so let's talk about so sodadaki and soneko for a second. In the Japanese incense tradition, there's two types of incense burning: sodadaki and soneko. Uh, one is for devotional purposes and the other is for just enjoyment. But the Japanese, who were essentially a culture that was the last to receive incense, and, and what I mean by that is that as Buddhism spread, Japan was one of the last countries to get Buddhism. And Buddhism is synonymous with incense, and it comes from a, a very old sutra talking about how in the Buddha's world, Everything is fragrant like incense. Now, for people that aren't Buddhist, you might say, well, how does that relate to Christianity? Well, there was one in the history of Christianity, there was the, the tradition of calling Jesus the panther. And why would they call him the panther? Well, the panther lies in wait and uses its sweet breath to actually attract people. Okay? So what's interesting about the fact that, that you're seeing no smoke here is that the 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 Japanese developed, and I'm 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 not gonna. This is a that that conversation alone is probably 45 minutes, right? But there's a particular way of of warming incense in Japan, and you're seeing this modified with an electric burner today, where we can set the temperature at the perfect amount to get the fragrance without the other part of it, which would be the smoke or the burning and and the kind of the other parts of that. Well. Again, the metaphor or analogy, depending on how we're using this, is that if you and I are set to the right temperature as we begin to connect, then your natural fragrance will start to emanate and my natural fragrance will begin to emanate. And so by setting expectations, by you know, finding things that we value that you know, are shared between the two of us, we can really create an amazing... Uh, experience between the two of us. And then this relates to some, you know, some of the words like, you know, like the smell of success or the smell of fear. And so we see fragrance being used in these ways to explain <laughs> certain, certain aspects. Um, but I, 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 I want to make sure that I don't miss this point though. So earlier I was talking about how we'll talk about the difference between smelling and listening. Okay. So in Japan and in other countries, the, the idea here, it's a smell incense is actually considered crude or rude. If you're listening to the incense, then you're listening for the value that it can have on your life. Sandalwood, the one we're with right now in the room, very meditative, very calming. So you'll notice that the conversation, like if you were to go back and listen to the first part of the conversation. Yeah, I'm wired up, and, ready to go. And listen where we are now, we are relaxed. 
So now someone can say, well, can't I just go out and buy essential oils? Of course you can. Because it's it's not like this isn't unique or special to only me. It's really more about the process than it is about the practitioner, right? So how I often language this is that the incense is the true teacher. It has nothing to do with me. Now, I'm providing a particular context. I'm providing a particular way in which that you're receiving it. Just like in the same way that if you are in therapy, it's not uncommon to have people go through eight or ten therapists until they finally find someone that they resonate with, right? That means that the frequencies are are lined up. So speaking of frequencies for a moment, um, this sandalwood that you are experiencing, I think it's the University of Arizona. Don't quote me, though. They did uh, a ton of research in the 90s figuring out how does incense, like where... Like, what is the vibrational aspect of it? Like, if you, if we look at physics, we know that everything in our physical reality vibrates at a specific level in order for it to exist. We raise or lower the vibration of this microphone, it ceases to exist. Same thing with us. So when you start getting into, and this is maybe more of the woo-woo stuff that is based in science now, is that, you know, what is the frequency that you're looking to have in your life to be able to get you to begin to take consistent action in a very particular way to develop for yourself a new reality. When you thought about creating this podcast, there was a whole bunch of physical stuff you had to do. You had to go get microphones, cameras, you had to find staff, you had to figure out guests, you do all these things, right? And so there was this period of uncomfortability where then after that point in time, where you've created all that, then you've created the space to be able to have the kinds of conversations that you're having on this podcast. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So it, it, so it, the, the, the point is this, is that the sub, so going back to subconscious and conscious mind is that it takes 91 days for a human being to actually upgrade their identity around whatever it is that they're doing. So if someone wants to learn guitar, and let's say that they're a, you know, that, that they're brilliant at it and they learn all the notes and everything very quickly. There's still going to be 91 days where that individual feels uncomfortable, where they feel like, you know, I'm not a guitarist yet. But then one day in the, in that span of those 91 days, they're like, I am a guitarist. And suddenly then the speaking changes, the reality changes and everything around you changes. What's your sense for why 91 days? Why not 120 why not 30 what's going on i you know i the that's that's the research for 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 lack of a better term um and it's often referred to again as an identity upgrade because the subconscious mind does not like change so if we're just pulling from if we're just pulling uh from from hypnotherapy for a moment if somebody wants to lose weight we're not going to tell them to to lose the weight we're going to tell them to let the weight go because the subconscious mind doesn't like to lose things. So if I say we're going to let it go, then that is you making a conscious decision to, to let that go. So it's something that you can really do for yourself very, very quickly, which is that, you know, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to quit drinking or I'm going to quit smoking or I'm going to whatever. No, just let it go. I'm going to let go drinking. I'm going to let go smoking. I'm going to let go that particular way of being that makes people angry when I talk to them. It's uh, profound in its simplicity, and I find it to be uh, slippery. Just like when we were <laughs> describing, when you said, you know, what does that smell like? You know, I can grab it for a second, and then it's good. When you said, uh, 
you know, what does pine smell like, right? I can grab that idea for a moment, but then it vanishes. And yeah. can I bring it to mind? No, I can bring the image to mind. Right. And the very thing you're saying here about, uh, you know, letting the weight go or letting the drinking go, it seems like an idea very easy to grasp for a moment. Yeah. And then it slips away when you look at it too directly. Yeah. You know, almost like you were saying about the the incense being something like if you're smelling it, you're not yeah. you're not doing it right, right? You're you're supposed to be just letting it absorb with you. Yeah. Well in your in your response right now, you just you just answered it. So nothing that we do as humans will last, including our physical bodies, right? At some point we're gonna depart from Earth. So if we're talking about bringing in something new, when we do it, it only lasts for a moment. So that's the importance of having consistent action related specifically to your intended outcome. So, you know, it just so let's step away for a moment from incense or all of this. Like when I'm working, I work with a lot of executives and I work with a lot of, you know, really interesting people around really being as effective as they can be. And for some people, they may not be scent oriented, but, you know, so where are they? Are they audio? I mean, are they, are, you know, are, are they tactile? Are they kinesthetic? Are they, you know, uh, visual, audio, things like that. So when we're looking at the entire mechanism, for me being, I, I was never an audio person until I worked in radio. And then once I worked in radio, I, I now enjoy audiobooks more than Reading a my experience book. exactly. I had until somebody taught me, you know, how could this sound or what is going on there? Yeah, you don't appreciate it. But once you can hear it, then you can hear all of the stuff that's in there, and you yeah. really appreciate the crystal clear quality or the the volume being just right. You really care about it, but you can't care about it until you understand it. Yeah, and so when you talk about so I so there's this concept that people that work with me know, which is called being whole and complete. So imagine, Vance, that you were able to leave every single conversation that you ever have going forward saying everything you need to say and hearing everything you need to hear, and you could leave every conversation. How do you think that that would transform your life? I mean, it would make you feel um, much more stable, much more like you... You knew what you, you knew what you had to do, and you were completing the, the those things because you understood. Yeah, you'd also be leaving baggage behind. Yeah. So so much in life, we are not given the ability to hear everything we need to hear and say everything we need to say. If you said something to me and gave me instructions, like let's say that we're in an airplane and 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 we know we have to jump out of this aircraft, right? If my arrogance is getting in the way of hearing your instructions of how to pull a parachute, that can be problematic for me because I may not pull the parachute at the right time and then I may end up hitting the ground and, you know, cease to exist, right? So being whole and complete is one big aspect that involves the incense, the martial arts, the work I do, you know, as a, as a hypnotherapist, the work I do as an executive coach, the things that I do in a whole number of areas to have you, not me, you become the most effective and productive that you can be based on what you want. There are some people in the world who are content to get up, have their, you know, breakfast, watch some TV, and that's all they really want out of life. But the kind of people that I want to associate with and the people that I want to really learn from and grow with are people that are literally having the philosophy of you're either expanding 
or you're contracting in life. I learned this when I had my first business, you know, back in the 90s, which was that even if I didn't sell anything in the course of the day, I still had lights on. I still had payroll. So, you know, one could say that you're either always expanding or you're not, you know, or the and or if you're just standing still, you're 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 contracting. And so one of the things that I'm I'm always asking people or having them look at is where do you want to grow today? And how can I be a safe space to be able to do that? And again, for some people, that sounds a little woo-woo, and it's not at all. I think it actually sounds very approachable. In fact, far more approachable than, um, you know, I, I, than typical therapy, right? You know, mm -hmm. like to, to describe that, it often seems like people being mired in their past mm -hmm. such that, like, they believe, hey, if I could just hack away at what went wrong, then somehow my future will be solved. Mm -hmm. And this sounds much more like, um, just like incense, very present, right? Yeah. It is, I I can only change something now. Yeah. And and much of that is about the, my perception of things. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the thing you brought up about, you know, what if you could have a conversation, every time you had a conversation, you could say everything that you needed to say and you could hear everything that you needed to hear. Mm -hmm. How does one get closer to doing that? So it's a it's a practice. So there was a, it's just, I, can't, I can't believe I'm referencing this, but there was, a, there was a post on Instagram that talked about how if you want to know who rules you, it's the person that you can't question or, or criticize. Yeah, right? that's right. So when we're looking at being whole and complete is that, let's just use the instruction uh, you know, story again, is that if I didn't hear you properly, or I have a question. I say, Vance, look, I, I have a question. What you told me to do is that you told me to put the parachute on, and then you told me that that yellow cord is what again? Is Okay, so that's the cord I'm going to pull. Okay, got it. So on one level, sometimes we don't hear another person because we don't want to occur stupid, or we don't want to occur less than. That's, that's, that's maybe the better way to say that. And so by beginning to practice saying everything you need to say, and hearing everything you need to hear, it will transform every relationship that you have with your boss, your spouse, your friends, you name it, because you're actually going to take the time to get whole and complete regarding all of that and how it relates to incense and how it relates to hypnotherapy is that we all want to be whole and we oftentimes don't feel like that we are. You know, and and these are things that we don't normally talk to others about because we forget that we're all having the same experience. It's really ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's and and I'm struck that the when I was growing up, my father, you know, I'm the middle child of seven, and my father was uh, very intentional about how he taught us to think about morals and values, and um. I uh, got it in me that uh, omission is the form of lie. Mm -hmm. So it, it became um, a, a system where if my father figured out that you had told him something, but you didn't tell him everything, then big problems would happen. Pro probably be better just to straight up lie to him, although no, that would not be good. And that has been a tremendous help to me yeah. in, in life. And in a way that it took me a long time to realize that other people don't have that yeah. right like and my mentor a guy named pete he's a hundred some years old he was like that but he figured out how to tell people everything that he needed to say 
without it ever having a barb, mm. without it ever having some some sense of him protecting himself by yeah. so so i find that what you're saying to be really like i'm like yeah well i do tell everybody i think but i think the way i deliver that message is oftentimes uh barbed whereas i think many many other people are saying i don't say everything i think and i just keep it inside yeah well i appreciate that you mentioned lying so you like before we started you talked about how you said you wanted to know a little bit about my government background okay so I'll give you a little bit of context for that. I'm not going to go too deep into it. But before 9-11, I had a company where we taught military, government, law enforcement, and other groups different use of force policy up to deadly force in the martial arts or defensive tactics, which is the word that's used today for that. And when 9-11 happened, uh, a couple of months afterwards, I received a phone call. And uh, this this guy had a very thick Hispanic accent. He's like, are, "Are you a patriot?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm a patriot. What's what's this about?" He's like, "He's like, do you want that job?" And I'm like, "Doing what, right?" And uh, and he told he told me enough. And I'm like, I said, "But so I don't really have a sense of the of the job." And and he goes, "Well, can you be on a plane in three days to D.C. to train?" And I said again, "To do what?" And he goes, well, really, we really can't tell you, but it pays this much. And I said, ah, I'll be on a plane in three days. And so one of the first things that I learned when I was being trained was that, first of all, everyone is a liar. And there's only three ways that all human beings lie. Lie by omission, lie by exaggeration, or an outright untruth. So if you understand, and this is, this is applicable to everything in life, including sales. Are you exaggerating? Are you omitting? Or are you straight up telling me a lie? And so given a lot of, a lot of my role is sales, business development, you know, as an executive, et cetera. When I'm talking to somebody, it's like, are you wasting, just tell me yes or no. I don't, I don't, well, you know, maybe I'll get with you next week. You know, the word, things like words, like maybe I'll try things like that. Those are all Forms of lies, right? But lie by exaggeration, lie by omission, or an outright lie. And once you begin to start to listen to people in that way, it will change not only how you communicate with people, but how they communicate with you. So not a joke. Whenever I hire anyone, the first conversation I have with them is like, hi, okay, so we're going to be working together. I just want you to know that every, every human being is a liar. And I want you to know that all of us will do this. We will lie by exaggeration, we will lie by omission, or we will tell an outright untruth. My request is that you don't do that with me. And the reason why that I'm saying this to you is because I listen in that way, right? How we listen is often the reality that gets created around us. How we listen is how the reality gets created around is us. It's oftentimes how reality gets created around wow. us. So if I'm listening for your greatness, Vance, what's going to show up? Yeah, my greatness. Right? If I listen for like my mistrust for you, what's going to show up? Uh, the things that I, you know, the flaws. And the right. Because you're flawed, I'm flawed. We're all flawed. <laughs> Yay! Right? So it's, it's a lot of this is giving ourselves permission to, again, to be our whole selves. And there's many ways to do that, you know? Like, you know, if you happen to be Christian, fantastic. There's a path for that. If you're Buddhist, fantastic. There's a path for that. If you're Hindu, if you're a Sikh, if you're, you know, all of that, there's all of these particular structures. 
What's interesting for me is that given that, again, starting at nine years old, studying world incense traditions, that means that I have had to study every single religion and culture that relates to incense. And guess what? All of them have it. Yeah, I mean, you do put a new smell in here. Yeah. And I, when I was readjusting my seat, I caught a, a whiff of it. I was yeah. like, and I was like, oh, that smells like church, right? <laughs> Catholic church. <clears throat> All right, so. So I love that you say. So, so I, then I take it that you're Catholic. I uh, grew up Catholic. Okay, yeah. got it. Perfect. All right. So this is the, so this I love this connect. So the imprinted in, Catholic. In, in, imprinted. <laughs> yeah. So the incense that's on right now is called kaifi. What is kaifi? Kaifi is was the main incense of the Egyptian culture, burned three times a day, and what's inside of kaifi? One of the many ingredients is frankincense. Frankincense obviously relates to frankincense and myrrh. If you're Catholic, you have been in the Catholic Church when frankincense has been burned. And I, when I give lectures or public demonstrations, I can always tell you who the Catholics are. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, my God, it's not like that. You know? I mean, it does. It smells right. like, oh, this, this is going to be a long mass. <laughs> this is going to be a long one. Well, what's interesting, though, is that is that so I, I have a thoroughfare friend of mine who was trained in the Catholic Church. Thoroughfares obviously create, you know, the burner to the swinging censers, right? And the quality of this of the frankincense that the Catholic Church burns for the most part is lower quality. Hojari is actually the best or one of the best forms of frankincense. It's almost like a yellowish green in color and it's a it's like a, if you know a visual image might be the size of of a of a dime or a, a or like a nickel, right? If you look at most of the incense that's burned in the Catholic Church, it's very small little pebbles, you know, like like fish rocks, right? Like, you know, like in a fish. Yeah, they just take a spoon and sprinkle right. it over the coal. Well, so kaifi was also considered to be um, a healing combination of fragrances that was burned throughout Greek and Roman times. Um, you know, if we look at Caesar and some of the other rulers, um, you know, quite literally, they would have tons and tons of frankincense be brought in. So let's talk a little bit about frankincense from a from a medicinal standpoint. Um, when you burn frankincense, the smoke actually kills bacteria. The smoke actually helps your lungs. The Mayo Clinic is using frankincense to help with lung issues and lung cancer. So when we talk, I mean, like what, you know, whatever word you want to use for the divine is that if if Earth is the Garden of Eden, sorry, Garden of Eden metaphorically, then everything that's created by the by by whatever words you want to call it is something that we can use in our daily life to continue to heal us, refine us, bring us back to center, etc. So I'm I'm watching your physiology, but I want you to say it. What do you notice about your mind right now? Um probably depth right just just uh it seems not just calm but more like um a little bit like i'm high actually <laughs> so con so contemplative yeah that's that's right yeah and i would say that my experience of being high is is not about giggling or couch lock right. it, it's very much like i'm going to take this thought and take the time to explore it very deeply right and that is exactly where where yeah, yeah that's very good yes yeah. so where you are now so what you what you're doing is that you're accessing your alpha brain state so if we go back to the mental image earlier in in our talk 
of the stick of incense burning in front of the black background and we're watching in the smoke, right? When you're watching the smoke or when you're having this experience of a pleasant fragrance, your alpha brain state is taking over. The alpha brain state is also the brain state that when you're focusing to putt on a green, that's the alpha brain state, which is in many ways the reason why the people love golf, yes, for the game itself, but also the mental clarity that begins to emerge from that because of the way that the the way the Hindus would explain it is samadhi, single pointed concentration. So we're in this experience right now. You may have just gotten another whiff of, of, of the kaifi, right? And so it's putting us in this contemplative state of mind. When we are in a contemplative state of mind, there really isn't there there there's no space for being stressed. There's no space or there's no um you know we're not rushed, we're not uh worried about what's next. Uh, I love the uh, Once I had children, I had to stop doing jujitsu. <laughs> but uh I was doing jujitsu for qu- quite a while and uh the thing that I miss most mm. about it was you would leave on Wednesday night mm. and nothing could bother you. Mm-hmm. Nothing could be wrong. You yeah. were in total focus. And I, it was because, you know, you end a jujitsu session by rolling with other people. Yep. And the goal is to get them to submit you and you're trying to submit them. And yeah. so you you aren't thinking about what you know what i'm having for dinner or what happened earlier today or what's going on tomorrow because the present moment is a hundred percent it and i would say the experience that i'm having right now is the same one as i had driving home from jujitsu which was always the best 20 25 minutes of my alone week you know and, and never had time like that but that's what this is yeah and so if we connect that to hypnotherapy for a moment when you have a productive session, and I would say right now we're having a productive session because your mind has gotten to a place that you enjoy, that you feel centered with, etc. Would you like to guess how long a hypnotic suggestion or a hypnotic state will last for most people? Just a few minutes, I'm guessing. So, so, so if you're actually giving a suggestion um, and a and what's referred to as a hypnotic prescription. And you and you begin to practice that. It's about seventy-two hours. Oh, so if so, when we get into a good state, so long as you're continuing to represence that on your own, you can hold that very powerfully for about seventy-two hours. Now, every time that you're hypnotized, you you can go deeper and deeper, and so there there's evidence that shows that it can last a lot longer. But again. You know, when you're when you're taking people out of and I'm going to say mostly Americans because we have such a a weird amalgamation of thoughts and ideas in the United States, which is great. But, you know, if I go back to the first part of the conversation regarding incense is that one of the first things I do when I give a public talk is I say, what do you wait like? How do you associate incense? And you get the jokes like the '60s and marijuana and whatever. And you know, when I was in college, I used to I used to burn incense and cover the marijuana smell, which is funny because it, it didn't work. It it doesn't work. It's <laughs> it it just doesn't work, right? The reason why that you think it does is a little thing called olfactory orientation, which is that once all of your receptors, you know, in in your nose for 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 you know to not use the scientific terms is that once all those receptors are used up, you don't smell it anymore, you know, which is the reason why that when you walk, you know, like if you just cooked something 
after a while, you don't smell it anymore. You walk outside, come back in your house. You're like, oh, my gosh, the house smells like onions and garlic. And it's because then you're, you've cleared that out. Again, that can be used as a metaphor or an analogy for what we do in life. If you're mired in, in constant stress or you're in an abusive, narcissistic relationship, like I do a lot of work with people that are, you know, getting over the trauma of being in narcissistic relationships. You know, they're like now with the advent of social media, the statistics begin to show that at least 50% of the population now is exhibiting some form of narcissism. And if you haven't studied the damaging effects of narcissism, just go out on the internet for five minutes and you'll start to see that. And so we as human beings all have aspects of ourselves that can have that. But when you look at how much trauma that we encounter in the course of our life and how little healing we give ourselves, whether it's a massage, yoga, you know, meditate, things like that, it's it's very small in relation to the rest of our experience in life. When I think about people saying oh, we have trauma right now, you know, I'm not going to a coal mine to work. Yeah. I'm not uh, threatened by war. Mm -hmm. I Famine is something that seems so distant as to almost not be possible. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm certain that it is actually possible. So it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this idea that we are all experiencing trauma. Mm -hmm. I get it. I, and I, and I, I hear you. And that may just be how you're orienting yourself. Like you're not going to allow yourself for that. But depending on where you fall from a political standpoint, you know, you might watch either CNN or Fox. And that's the, that's that's just say that you're more of a Fox watcher than you are a CNN watcher. If you spend two hours watching Fox and then go over to CNN, you're going to experience some trauma <laughs> based, based on the thinking and based on where that is. And so... Essentially, you know, when we're talking about trauma and pain, it's really where, you know, our boundaries and our values have been um, uh, tra trampled upon, for, 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 for lack of a better term, right? Um, and so some of these things are obviously necessary. Like stress is something that's necessary. If you want to build your body, right, we all have muscle, but I need to create stress, i.e., you know, resistance for you to build that. But what trauma is existing in your life that if we removed that or you removed it is the better way to say it, how could you be much more effective? I assert that if you look and we all do this, if I removed this from my life, I would be much more effective. If I removed this way of being, I would be much more effective. And so some of the things that we don't see as trauma maybe aren't because how we hold it. Right. And and again, not everybody is in, you know, relationships that are, are abusive. Not everyone has a bad boss, you know, but everybody has ha has experiences with others where you're like, you know what, I got to work with you, but I don't really agree with your values. And that's where a lot of the strife begins to emerge. So I think I think long story short and in, in, in just kind of putting a button on this is that when I'm because I, I, I oftentimes don't feel that I have a lot of trauma because I've done a lot of this work over the years. Right. But when I'm when I when I ask myself, OK, what part of my personality, if I remove that, can I be much more effective? And it could be watching less television, you know, because 
certain TV shows will cause a mental trauma for us based on what it is. Like I don't watch horror films because I don't need that stress in my life. You know, um, I also don't like it when I'm watching a TV show and like a character, you know, is going through an uncomfortable, you know, part of like a relationship or something, or they're being like uh, rejected, you know, by a man or a woman, to, to, depending on what the situation is. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Why would I want to put myself through that? Now, there's reasons for that, but I pick and choose. I curate my life. That's I think I think that's a better way to say this is that if everyone started curating their life, then they would automatically start to find where they could be more effective in everything they're doing. I th I completely agree with that about the concept of curation because when you start saying these are the things I want to allow my my mind to think more of. There's a guy named Eric Well who I've had on the podcast a couple of times. He's uh, he's written a lot about uh, dreams, mm. and he talks about how um, television is basically faking out our dreams to to not be like the purest form, that instead what we're doing is right before we go to bed, we're watching some story that our brain is piecing together because it can't distinguish between our lives and this, this make-believe life, and so it's really distorting our dreams. And I started to take this seriously about like, hey, well, what am I putting in my mind in order that the eight hours, not all of which you're dreaming during, but part of it, you know, significant portion, what can I be putting into my mind so that my dreams are better, more mm -hmm. fulfilling? This was a great decision, right? This, this was like, because once you start cutting a few things out, and to your point about like, you don't realize something's a problem until you realize it. Yeah. And like, so you do carry around a bunch of bullshit. You do carry around a bunch of things that don't help you. And whether or not you label it as trauma is not actually the important thing. The important right. thing is that you identify I'm carrying around this stuff. Yeah. Well, the reason why that it's important to label things is that the subconscious mind cannot do anything with anything unless it has a label. So by labeling something a trauma, then the subconscious mind knows what to do with it. <laughs> I can accept that. I mean, I think that, you know, we, we as humans, like you, you know, any kind of time you're in a discussion, you're in a debate, you're whatever, you must define your terms. If you're not, if you don't define your terms, then you can be talking about different things. And really, you know, I believe a significant portion of human experience, maybe, maybe, maybe all of it is the experience of sharing something with another person have having the understanding like i'm a primate that is living on this rock mm -hmm. that i shouldn't be able to see you right yeah. it just happens that somehow through the course of evolution this little set of tissue is able to grab you know this tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum yeah. that is visible light and we can see each other and we can communicate and I'm experiencing all these things. And when I find another person, and your term was resonate, but when I can find another person that can go, ooh, 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 ah, 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 <laughs> and they have the same like, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, that I do. Yeah. This is like uh, amazing. Like, it's a huge part of the what it is to be human. Maybe the only thing, because just like you said, everything goes away, right? So the only thing you have is some sort of connection for fleeting moments of time. Yeah. Um. At the beginning of what you just said, what struck me or what I, what I started thinking about was blind spots, right? Part of the reason why that we, cho we choose the people that we choose 
to be our friends is that they either magnify or they allow us to conceal the blind spots about ourselves. And, and that's one of the beauties of having a coach or having a therapist of any kind is that that individual starts to have you look at the blind spots that you don't even know that you have. Now, if you don't want to go out and get a therapist, you don't have to. A lot of my therapist training came from my work with fragrance because by warming, burning, whatever words you want to use there, things are going to get unlocked in my subconscious and conscious mind that allow me to look at that. This is 100% true. Like, I, I cannot believe how much the smells of this. I'm like, audience, hear me now. <laughs> Go out and find a way to do this smelling thing because it is profound how much it's opened up in this conversation. I'm like, we can still talk about your book, but we were going to talk a lot more about your book and your like other, you know, yeah. special forces training. But just the very act that we've been doing this smell yeah. has gotten us to focus way more on the inside, being yeah. way more patient about time and about how quick the conversation moves. Yeah. Well, I want to be very clear. You said special forces. I have never been. No, I'm sorry. I've yeah. never been special forces. I just want to make sure that that my SF friends know that I am <laughs> that I am not that. And I have great respect for the training that 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 those gentlemen and, and other military personnel uh, have done and, and gone through. Well, I, you know, you mentioned the book and I, I just want to. So first of all, yeah. first of all. Do you know do you know what the fragrance is now that's on the warmer? No, I, the only thing I can say is it's closer to perfume than the other things. Okay. Like it smells more beautiful, I think yeah. is the word I that comes to mind. I love that you said that. So that's pure frankincense. Okay. Pure frankincense. <laughs> and notice you said beauty. Yeah. Those were your words. Yeah. Right? So when incense, so when I give a talk, I, uh, so I will oftentimes give a talk on the difference between Christian and Jewish incense, and why would I do that? Um, I once had a participant in southern Missouri say to me, now listen, man, I don't understand. Now, ha what does Jesus have to do with the Jews? And I said, well, you, you realize that Jesus was a Jew, right? No, he was a Christian. I said, well, no, the naming of that happened a little bit down the road. The reason why that I point that out is because there's a lot of misconceptions around actually which religions used incense. Incense was a part of Judaism until the fall of the second temple. Now, it's written that when the third temple emerges, incense will return. There's a whole bunch, there's a whole bunch more to this. But when you talk about, so again, let's, let's go back to the incense stick burning in front of the black background. Imagine the smoke rising, okay? The pyramid texts in Egypt talk about how that frankincense and other resins are the sweat of the gods, okay? Back when there was obviously pantheism and things like that. But when you are wanting to give devotion to whatever name you want to call the divine, when you're burning incense, what happens to your attention, to your awareness? It starts to move up. Because you're watching, you're watching the, the the smoke rise, right? You're putting your you're literally you're putting your face to the heavens, and so I think one of the interesting aspects of 
beyond the smell of incense, beyond the the use of incense in certain in all religions for that matter, is that there's this other aspect of ourselves, our higher self. There's a number of other words for it, but you know, we oftentimes are not given the opportunity or the structure to continually access our higher self. And again, this is what this is all about. So um, to, to connect this to what you were saying just a few moments ago about my book. So the book that I wrote in 2020 is called The Life and Times of Missouri's Charles Parsons Between Art and War. And this is explained in great detail in the preface. But when I arrived at uh, to Wash U in 2006, after five years working with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and other agencies post 9-11, one of the first things that I was tasked to do as the person responsible for security and training of the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts at Washington University in St. Louis was the collection itself. And so the director of the museum, Sabina Ekman, asked that we get out all of the 19th century art that had started WashU's art collection. And once everything was laid out, there was a lot of art and artifacts um, from the 19th century, specifically owned by a gentleman by the name of Charles Parsons. Charles Parsons lived from 1824 to 1905. He was a banker, financier. He was a Civil War colonel. He was best friends with General Sherman and General Grant. He was one of the early founders of the American Bankers Association. If you've ever seen the mummies uh, at the St. Louis Art Museum, two of those mummies he purchased in person in Egypt in 1895. One of them is the finest mummy outside of Egypt, and it happens to be in St. Louis. And it's, 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 it's called Henet Wedjabu, and she was a singer uh, in the Temple of, of, of Amun, and it's gilded, meaning that it's been layered in gold. And she's the only non-royalty mummy that is gilded, which makes it extraordinary. So back to the how this relates to incense is that as I was looking at the table of artifacts, I walked over and I saw what's called a kogo. And a kogo is a is a container that holds chipped mixtures. And it to have it, you know, when you're talking about the incense culture of Japan, to have a kogo, a little bit you're, you're, you know, you're refined. You're having a, a, an object that's holding something of value, i.e. the incense. And it was labeled as a bowl. I'm like, that's not a bowl. Then there was a Tokugawa incense burner. How do I know it's a Tokugawa incense burner? You could see the Tokugawa crest. And you could see the Buddha. And you could see 16 of his disciples around the bowl itself, or around the incense burner. I'm making the joke. Because it was labeled as a bowl. It's not a bowl. It's a Tokugawa incense burner. And then there was uh, a bowl from uh, a, a porcelain painter by the name of Yabu Maizan, again, labeled as unknown. Not uncommon in the 19th century. Many collections at, at art museums around the world are just labeled as, as either unknown or what it might look like. But I, I went to the director and I said, that's a Kogo. That's a Tokugawa incense burner. That's an Okimono of a Komoto, which is a, which is a Japanese incense master. And she's like, yeah, but it says bowl and it says this and it says that. I said, yeah, but the accession record is incorrect. And she said, write an essay. So by writing an essay, what, what happened was that I, I came face to face with Charles Parsons. He is, he is an extraordinary 19th century business leader who used business 
to improve education. He was an abolitionist. He was against slavery. He was doing all of these progressive things. Like this is like when you talk about things being woke today, he was what was called a wide awake in the 19th century. <laughs> there were there was an actual paramilitary group, an early part of the of the Republicans that actually ended slavery, that said we are wide awakes and we are progressives. And those were the those were the people that got Lincoln elected. So this book is the amalgamation of 10 years of research and the reason why it relates to today's conversation i'll just i'll have you thumb through this as we're chatting because it it relates to everything we've been talking about is that chapter 9 in the book is called fragrant curios and i'm on chapter 7 getting there oh also i just saw a picture of harriet hosmer uh harriet hosmer is an extraordinary female sculptor uh, who was one of the first to achieve international acclaim and Charles Parsons and his wife supported Harriet Hosmer in the 19th century to uh, have her art be all over the world. So as we're looking at this together, what do you see in that image? Like, like describe that image to your listeners. Well, it's a, it's a bowl, um, but it, it's, it's deep. So it looks like the size of a man's hand mm. in as far as its depth and its width, it would be something that you would probably hold about a cup of liquid mm. Um, and then the, above it is a hand putting chopsticks into the top of the cup, and there seems to be something floating at the top of it. Yeah, got it. So this, uh, so this cup, bowl, is called a monkoro, and monkoro means listening vessel. So when we go back to the conversation a little while ago, I said how I said we don't really smell incense, we listen to it. In the incense ceremony, the ko-do ceremony, ko meaning incense, do meaning the way, you know, as a martial artist, you you know that any of the do arts, you know, are is a path to refinement. So kyu-do, judo, aikido, cha-do, right? All of these do arts are paths of refinement. So the incense ceremony using this cup called a monkoro allows us to begin to listen to the fragrance, allows us to begin to unlock things that are in our mind that allow us to talk about them and quite literally, to use the expression, talk things out. Because once we talk things out, what gets left is space to do whatever you want with it. And most people don't have space in their day-to-day -day lives. Man, this is this is fantastic. <laughs> so this is one of the objects I was telling you about. So describe to the listeners what you see there. So what you see are two uh, Japanese figures. One on the left is an older man. He seems to be holding like a book. And then he also has his hand, uh, looks like he's stirring something in a, in a similar cup. And then to his uh, left, there's a little boy that is also um, holding a book. Only his book is open and he appears to be writing or, or sitting at the knee of you know, a parent or some kind of master and trying to learn from him. Yeah. So what you're seeing here is that this is a komoto. Does he look like a samurai? Um, would you say? Yeah. I mean, what, whatever a samurai would look like. I mean, I would have no way of knowing, but yeah. yes. Well, so he's, so he's wearing samurai dress. He has, he has the top knot back there, right? So what you're looking at is that you're looking at probably a depiction of the Shino school of incense. So the Shino school of incense was known as the fire school, and it was primarily practiced by the samurai. 
And so you've got a you've got a senpai, a senior. Uh, there's other words we could say like sensei and shihodin, things like that. And then you have the acolyte, you have the the kohai, the junior student. The junior student is holding uh, a book that that translates as the work of Mencius, which is really all about you know Mencius was about really having humans be their most refined and enlightened self. And then this is if you if you look really close, do you see how it looks like there's there's clouds on that book that that the older gentleman is holding? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So that's an incense sutra, or uh, it would be a it would be an, an incense um, classifying manual. And then if you'll look here, you can see this bowl, right? What he's actually holding are chopsticks. So therefore, if we connect it back to this photo, you're looking at basically the same thing. So what's interesting about this object is that this was unlabeled as unknown and it's now been corrected. But you could see these objects online or in person at the Kemper Art Museum at WashU right now. And these were some of the things that, that, that were, you know, connected or corrected, excuse me, um, when I got to the art museum back in 2006, which then was a lot of the impetus for the writing of the book. This is the incense burner that I was telling you about. You want to describe what you see there? Now, this is a little bit different. It looks like a porcelain pot, and there is a man who um, looks Japanese. He has a dot on his forehead, but he also has a halo around him, much the same way that saints do in the mm -hmm. Catholic uh, paintings, things like that. And then around him are all of these other Japanese men in ornate clothes they look like some of them are bare chested with things around their biceps that appears that they're wearing like flowing robes some of them have a fan it's interesting one of those fans looks like um like a christian cross yeah. but the man is at the center the man with the halo is at the center in dark robes and everybody's looking at him but he doesn't look particularly fit he actually kind of has like um you know rolls on his stomach and stuff yeah. it, it makes you kind of yeah so what you're looking at here is you're looking at a Tang Dynasty depiction of the Buddha with the 16 disciples of the Buddha. Now, one can say, but wait a minute, I thought, I thought only Jesus had disciples, right? So there's this connection in Buddhism and in Christianity where we see similar iconography over the, over the history. So you said you were, you were raised Catholic. The Catholic Rosary is 108 beads, Right, the Buddhist rosary is 108 beads. Um, Matteo Ricci, uh, who was a missionary, uh, I think in like the maybe the 10th century, um, when he got to Japan, he thought that the devil had beaten him there because when Matteo Ricci shows up, he's like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! We've got incense, like in my religion." We've got bells, like in my religion. We've got red robes, like in my religion. We have the, the rosary. They have a, a thing called a mala, same number of beads. The devil must have beaten me to Japan. And so it's a wonderful story about how, wait a minute, how do we have these connections? How do we have these similarities? What is your sense for how we have this? Well, series? you know, I mean, this that's probably another three-hour conversation. But in short, I think a lot of that is the is the uh, Library of Alexandria. I think that because we, we know that there were Buddhists and Christians and, and a number of different philosophies, you know, taking place at the Library of, of Alexandria. A lot of people don't know or don't remember that when you landed uh, in, in that port, 
where you know where the library of, of Alexandria exists, the officials would get on the boat that you showed up in, and anything that was considered academic, writing, books, etc., they would take them off of the boat, they would copy them, and then give back the copy to the boat and store the original in the Library of Alexandria. And unfortunately, it burned. So who knows what we lost from a human standpoint? What is the lesson to be learned from the Library of Alexandria? Well, we need to back stuff up. <laughs> is that it, though? I mean, because it, like, uh, it seems like that's the obvious uh, thing, right? That we lost this treasure and that mm -hmm. there were all the... But but you know you're bringing up something I'd never heard before, right? That these religions had crossed paths there, or you know, for anybody that doesn't know Library of Alexandria, how would you describe it? I I mean, it was the original internet in in so many ways. I mean, imagine that every culture, every known culture that's coming into the Library of Alexandria is that if your job as an official there is to collect that data, collect that understanding, and leave it there. I mean, that's I mean. This may explain the reason why, uh, like when you start to talk about people like uh, Graham Hancock or Randall Carlson or different people like that, where how do you explain these maps that map out Antarctica before it was frozen? How do you map? Out, I mean, how are there maps that have existed that map out parts of the world that we supposedly weren't at until somewhat relatively recently? Well, the idea is, is that we have probably forgotten more as as a human race than 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 we remember i mean there's now and i mean and not to sound you know a little out there but you know there's now enough evidence to to begin to really build a case for the fact that there may have been advanced civilizations prior to 12,600 years ago. If you look at the amount of peer-reviewed peer papers now that exist in talking about how we have all of this evidence of you know, massive flooding, how do you explain the 200 cultures from around the world that have a flood myth? Who maybe have never even had in any interaction with the Bible talking about you know the 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 deluge or or, or the flood. I mean, I think there's a lot more to this, um, but you know to keep it focused on uh, on the conversation today, you know w where I speak from regarding incense and fragrance is that there's a six thousand year history and tradition of incense that we know exists because the pyramid texts like literally written in stone talk about um, incense and its and its benefits from an archaeological standpoint though is that it's a 35,000 year history and it probably goes back a lot further because in the last five to ten years they've pushed back Homo sapiens sapiens which is the current incarnation that we are back to 300,000 years it makes no sense to me that We've been around for 300 years, 300,000 years, as we are right now. Nothing has changed. I mean, we're thinking the same. We're, we're physically the same. It makes no sense to me that we only have a 6,000-year history of culture. It makes no sense to me. And so, you know, back to the archaeological evidence just for a minute to, to, to complete that, is that the caves in southern France, uh, like Chauvet, for example, there's a cave that contains a, a great deal of bear skulls. And there's one bear skull that's turned over and put up onto what looks like an altar. And there's incense that's been burned in it. And it's, it's 35,000 years old. So 
That means 35,000 years ago, whomever was living in those caves did some kind of a devotional act where they turned over a bear skull, grabbed whatever was fragrant, lit it on fire, and had the smoke rising in the cave and this and that. You've talked a lot about, you know, the discoveries that incense um, helps two people have together, helped you figure out with this book, you know, to find this great man that had been yeah. lost to history. Yeah. Um, you've studied it for 40 years. Mm -hmm. What else is there for you to learn about incense? It's just, it, it never ends. It never ends. Like, if you came to my home office, and I have a, I have a 19th century... Uh, carpenter's chest and I that's there there's a very particular reason for that symbolism but if you were to open it up there's probably 300 different types of incense that are in there and again you'll notice that today have you seen any smoke no uh -uh. has it been offensive to you in any way shape or no, form it, it has only improved it in fact multiple times I've been like how can I incorporate this into my life how can I do that yeah well and that and and that, that's what I'm getting to is that Imagine if 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 all of your friends were just people that were there to to have you be your best self, your greatest self. And this is not to discount any of my friends, you know, but it is to say that my circle is very small because I am I curate who is in my life and why they're in my life. You know, like if this was a shock jock radio conversation today, I probably would have passed. You know, but I know who you are and I know what you're committed to and I know the great work that you're doing. And so I'm like, I'd love to sit down with Vance and 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 have a conversation. Well, I mean, when you told me about incense, like we had had an amazing conversation. I don't remember exactly what had happened. I think yet we talked just before I had the my second daughter. Mm. And I think I had told you like, hey, man, I'm thinking about the the um i i have a, a flower outside of my house and mm. i was talking with you about the it's called a korean um spice viburnum mm. and it's a fascinating flower because it has two smells it mm. has the perfume smell when you first get it mm -hmm. and then you get the spice smell which is more like um so you have like a flower and then like cinnamon in some way but those mm -hmm. two smells don't do it justice and i asked you about it and that began a conversation that my entire drive everything i was doing we just talked and talked and talked. And I thought, I don't do this very often where I just like randomly ask a person that I had just spoken to for a little while to come on the podcast. But this has been absolutely wonderful. And I, you are welcome to come back anytime, man. I love it. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's again, I love what you're doing, Vance, because you're authentic. You know, it's and, and, and that's the highest compliment that I can give somebody. You know, like if you tell someone, oh, you're an honest guy. Well, OK, we all can be honest. But when you're being authentic, you're being the who you know is the best self that you can be for others. When you're being authentic, that's what makes the difference with people. It's not how much money you have. It's not the job you have. It's not the titles. I mean, we didn't even cover kind of what I do professionally, which is totally fine. I'm glad we didn't do that in, in, in many ways because then you get caught maybe in like what does it mean to be a CEO or a COO or any of those other titles. Is that what's the best way that we can make a difference for a positive difference for people? We're always making a difference, you know. And you know, when somebody cuts us off on the highway, they've made a difference with us. It may have not been positive, right? But but how do we how do we continual continually 
make a positive difference for others. And we all have different ways to do that. But yeah, you, you make it this morning, right before I came into my office. So we have a new producer here on the show. He's been great, but he's brand new. Yeah. And uh, I was coming up the elevator. I was talking with a listener of the podcast. His name's Nicholas Bartlett. And he said, what are you going to do to make him feel included today? Mm. And I was just about to see him as I came off the elevator. And I thought, thank God I have Nicholas in my world yeah. to tell me that because I wouldn't have thought of that on my own. Mm. And so then the elevator opens up and I'm, hey, I want him to feel included. And I think the point that you've been making this whole time about being present and curating your friends is one that you could take and be like, yeah, I'm going to do that in the future. But really, the core lesson is like, how are you going to do it now? Yeah. Like, how, how are you doing it as soon as you walk out the door, as soon as you turn off the podcast, as yeah. soon as you engage someone? I think this is incredibly profound. And again, so simple that when you go to grab it, if you look at it too closely, it yeah. disappears. So if you were, so that, first of all, fantastic. I, I loved how you encapsulated that. And I appreciate that share very much because I think that made a, a big difference for people. If you were attending any of my Monday or Tuesday morning meetings at any of the companies that I lead, one of the things that I remind staff just about every week is that if work, if, if we're spending our waking life at work, which is the majority of our time. Life is too short not to work with people you love and trust. And it's weird to maybe use the word love in the workplace, but I don't think that it is because, you know, we, we make jokes or, or we're light about this and, oh, I love that guy. Oh, I love Vance. Well, why do you love that person? Well, because I resonate with them and, and, you know, this person gets me and, I'm, I, and I, I feel safe around them or, you know, what have you. It's like, Oftentimes, people are at work, people are working out other things, and they're using work to do that, which is why there's oftentimes a lot of suffering at work, you know? Also, if, you're, if, we, if, we, if we go back to the conversation of narcissism for a moment, it is not uncommon at very high levels of business to encounter narcissists. Because in, in many ways, the, the positive aspects of narcissism is, is what creates that success, but then there's that other side of it to to your point earlier about about that shadow self. So it's like how do you balance the results that you need to generate with the connections that you need to have with the with the content that needs to be created throughout the course of the day to be able to have a whole and complete successful existence. This is what this whole conversation is about. Whether it's fragrance, whether it's hypnotherapy, whether it's, you know, different types of executive coaching that I do, things like that, it's, is that if we are fully living our life, when it comes time for us to go, then we will not resist it. Wow. Oftentimes, and, and I, so... Uh, how do I know this? That's probably probably one someone has that question. When I was 15 years old, my mother said to me, she said, so she was the head nurse of a nursing home. And she said, before you drive, you're going to spend the summer working in a nursing home. And I didn't know what I was going to encounter at 15 years old. But the amount of people that I interacted with who were in the quite literally days or moments toward their transition when you sat and talked with them and listened to them, 
part of the reason why that they were still holding on was that they were still they were attempting to get something resolved for them before they could go. When you when you talk about death and dying, if you look at the work of you know, Ross, for example, oftentimes family members will wait until the people that they want to say goodbye to are there, are present. And the last piece I'll share with this was that in twenty in twenty fifteen, my father passed away, and when he was in the last few days of his life, he had lost his voice. I couldn't speak with him anymore. And like one of my regrets is that I didn't, I mean, for a guy who worked in radio, who's worked in media and things like that, I don't have very many recordings of my dad's voice. So it was very upsetting. And, uh, but the day before he died, I could tell that he was, you know, really afraid to die. And, 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 and he was an atheist. And I don't know if this matters, but it's important to the story because I said to him, I said, are you afraid to die? And he nodded his head, yes. And I said, all right. I said, may I play for you a short lecture by a gentleman by the name of Alan Watts, who was a philosopher who passed away in 1973? And he nodded his head, yes. And the speech I played for him was called Going Over the Waterfall. And essentially, in this particular um, short four-and-a-half-minute speech Alan Watts talks about, he says, you know, when it's time to go over the waterfall, you just go over the waterfall, just like anything else. And you can't stop it. You just go over the waterfall. And there's a lot more to this. But um, if you know Alan Watts's voice, that's my best Alan Watts. It's good. Pretty good. <laughs> I know it. Um, and when, But when it was over, I said, did that make a, a difference for you? And he nodded, and he was gone the next day. And so oftentimes, and I, I don't normally talk about this, especially on something that's recorded or that may live forever on the internet, right? But I think that one of, one of the, 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 I'll use the word karma, like one of the karmas of my life is that, is that my grandfather taught me when I was very young is to leave people better than when you find them. And that is one of my imprints. That's one of my seminal moments where when given the opportunity, like if you're a jerk to me, there's a great part of my personality that will come out called the jerk. But if you allow the space for me to make a positive difference with you, we're going to make a positive difference with each other because we're going to start to resonate in that way. And, and we're both going to be left better than we started. And I think that ultimately is the greatest gift you can give anyone you ever meet. It may maybe really the only gift, right? That's, that's, uh, so profound. Uh, the, this, uh, coming October, we're going to run a series called Memento Mori. Mm. And, uh, during that series, we're going to talk to people that stretch from birth and OBGYN all the way to a funeral director yeah. and talk about people that have seen it. And um, I hope you'll come back on after that's done and we can have a discussion about like what we heard there. Because I feel like the thing that you are truly great at is uh, self-reflection in a way that um, doesn't feel like you're holding a mirror up to me. It Mm. makes it it makes it feel like you've created space Mm. where where the full self, where the belt can be loosened and the shirt can be untucked. Yeah. And the, and I think that, that may be 
yeah, that it's that is a very high compliment in in from me. Like the ability to be your authentic self. I think the reason you see that in me is because that's what you expected to see. And this has been a profound conversation. If people wanted to learn more about your work, your book, how how would you recommend they go about it? So LinkedIn is probably the easiest. You know, you can find me very easily there. Um, the uh, I would say that if the book, if you want me to read to you for six hours and four minutes, you can get the audio book. That's on Amazon. Oh, all right. Uh, you you can also you know get the physical book as well. Um, and you know, and I think. I would love that. I would love to connect with with anyone that this conversation resonated with because, you know, I one of my favorite quotes is that there are no answers. There are only openings because every opening leads to something else. And the answer, you know, may be there for a moment. But if we're always looking for openings as opposed to answers, then we're going to continually learn and we're going to continue to expand who we are. And again, if you believe that we're only expanding or contracting, I would much rather be expanding than contracting. And what is the first step people could use to get into incense? What, how could they take that first step? So what I would say is that probably aromatherapy is the easiest. I mean, if you want to go grab the oils, I mean, you'll know exactly what you're getting. There's a whole, I mean, there's so much information on aromatherapy, which is essentially what, what we were doing today. But what I like to call what we're doing today is as original aromatherapy because we're using the raw ingredients. We're not using the, the, uh, the, the pressed oils or the absolutes of that. And though I know a lot about that, I, I prefer to deal in, in the raw ingredients. For me, there's something that's more real for me. Because again, I don't, I mean, there's very reputable sellers out there of essential oils, but I don't know how it's made. If I go and, you know, pick up a pine needle, I know how it was made because I'm, I'm holding the product itself. And so to answer your question you know, a little more specifically, as I would say, Anything on aromatherapy, um, I would say that if you're interested in Japanese incense, you know, there are really great uh, sites like Shoedo, Yamada Matsu is, is another great company. Um, and, uh, you know, and if you get lost from there, just reach out. I'd be more than happy to, you know, direct uh, links and things like that to help out. John Lanius, thank you for coming on the podcast. Vance Crow, thank you very much. Ah, ah, ah.